Greetings, Rays community. Brent coming in live from Hilton Head Island here in South Carolina as my family and I continue our RV homeschooling, road schooling journey on the home stretch before we make our way back to New England. I am excited to be catching up for the second time today with Matt White, who is the Vice President of Advancement and President of the Utah State University Foundation. Welcome, Matt. Thank you very much, Brent. Appreciate being here. Well, uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground today. One of the things I've been doing with recent guests that has gone pretty well uh, is before we dive into your advancement career, uh, actually diving into your own decision to attend college uh, mm -hmm. and how you came to that decision. So take me back to Matt White, junior, senior year of high school. Who were you? Where were you? Uh, and ultimately, what led you uh, to your own college selection? Absolutely. Well, uh, my, my parents believed in developing a strong work ethic. So coming from a small town in South Central Illinois, I had the opportunity to work on my cousin's farm uh, during summers, uh, baling hay, walking beans, detasseling corn. And I realized that is not something I wanted to do my entire life. Uh, so uh, definitely wanted to get to college and um, went to a University of Evansville to uh, become and completed as a high school uh, science teacher. And that's where my career really kicked off um, uh, was teaching. And I, I still look at teaching as one of those core fundamental things that all of us as fundraisers should be doing. We're, we're teaching, we're mentoring, we're coaching the next gen generation of fundraisers. So yeah, going from the farm to, uh, um, to University of Evansville and getting my undergraduate degree in, in education was a very meaningful experience for me. And so, uh, did you teach then coming out of college? I did. I did. So uh, I actually uh, had the opportunity to teach in the comprehensive schools in Grantham, England uh, for my student teaching experience and kind of did my senior study on the difference between the comprehensive school system in England and the uh, American school, American education system here. And so did that. Um, uh, Could you give us here. Oh, sorry, the 30 second? Could you give us the 30 second synopsis on that difference? Yeah, you get really tracked um, over at the time. Now, this was back in the 90s. So you get tracked in the comprehensive school system uh, towards careers much earlier than you do here. You have more uh, decision making here to be able to do that. Um, but but yeah, I did that. And then I taught in St. Louis uh, at the um, uh, Francis Howe School District uh, for the, my first real teaching job. And so everybody thinks of dissecting the frog as sort of the quintessential <laughs> science uh, class. What was, as a teacher, your actual favorite uh, exercises, or were there any things where you felt like you really broke through, um, you know, in that sort of, um, I don't know, hands-on aspect of the job? Yeah, I've I, I really gravitated towards science because I like the lab. I think hands-on learning is, is really uh, an effective way to teach um, uh, a, a lot of different segments, whether it be high school kids or, um, you know, getting out part of our mentoring program here is, is learning kind of on the job training on how to be a fundraiser. So the lab experience definitely was um, something meaningful. We, we did several uh, uh, science days with uh, the group of uh, science teachers back then where we did a whole bunch of experiments uh, showcasing various components of science to our kids. That, that was a, a really fun day that um, kids could actually see see different reactions and different um, uh, experiments happen uh, in real time. So those were all, all really fun days too. I, th I think as we uh, advance this discussion, our audience will learn that you're, you're still very comfortable with experimentation and uh, running tests and measuring and then adjusting accordingly. So we'll get into some of those specifics, but um, I think you are, you know, uh, it's interesting because We've hosted over 50 people now on this uh, podcast, and I think you're the first one who has been a teacher, um, at least in the high school uh, context. There have been other folks who've taught uh, in, in, uh, at the college level, as, as I know you have as well. Um, but what, what ultimately led you into this uh, pursuit of higher education, leadership, and administration? Mm -hmm. uh, because that's probably not a... Um, a detour that most science teachers, uh, you know, would, would imagine taking. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of people say they found their way into fundraising um, in doing that, but um, I actually experienced fundraising and, and got to, to love the profession. And I think those two things really define me, the teacher and the fundraiser. But um, I actually uh, got an opportunity to work at the Emerson YMCA in Ferguson, Florissant, Missouri, 
um, as a program director leading their camp programs, their school-age childcare programs, but part of that was writing grants and going out and fundraising scholarships uh, for kids in the community. And I really enjoyed that part and kind of kept moving more and more towards the fundraising part and looking for those opportunities to do that. So that really what was what got me into fundraising was, you know, he heading up the child care, the, pro the camp program side of it, but uh, doing the fundraising as well and uh, just fell in love with uh, engaging with people and talking about their passions and learning about people and why they support communities. And, you know, that, that commitment, a little bit different than college with scholarships, but kind of the same thing, scholarships to help kids have those experiences that they felt were really important to them. So that's kind of what um, kind of gravitated me from teaching into fundraising and haven't looked back and thought about it twice for a second. Were there any early experiences where you remember meeting with donors? Uh, you know, I, I imagine you're just trying to learn what fundraising is to a certain regard, but were there early meetings where you just got the bug or that went really well or early wins where you just felt like, wow, this is this is like what I should be doing with my life? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think you, you can think back to those first asks about supporting scholarships and people's reaction to like, oh, yeah, this is something that could be really impactful for me to do for our community and for kids. And you, you started just to hear those, the excitement in giving. And I think that's what really got me to catch the bug is it wasn't this uh, taboo thing where I can't believe how can you ask for money? It was, hey, these are people's passions and we're connecting them uh, to meaningful opportunities that can really advance our community um, or advance our university or advance the nonprofit uh, group you're working for uh, in doing that. So. I, I think just the response, the initial response that, you know, at first it was kind of this like, okay, I'm actually going to ask me to give something uh, to us, but the reaction was incredibly positive. And to this day, you know, I, I tell fundraisers all the time, I, I, I've never been yelled at for asking for too much. Um, I've got different reactions, but I've never been yelled at for asking for too much. And it's, it's people's joy of being connected to something in very meaningful ways. I love that. And, and so you, got hooked. Um, what then was the catalyst to um, really decide you're going to migrate away from teaching directly uh, and take some steps to continue you, your own education um, to advance down this path instead? Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't think it was ever an official training program that I went through back then. It was having excellent mentors and um, having the right experiences, um, you know, working in the small shop initially where you're the jack of all trades, you're the annual giver, giving officer, you're the major giving officer, you're the grant writer, the plan giving officer, and kind of getting a broad uh, sense. And I, I, working at Friends of Kids with Cancer for Judy Chapjack, uh, who was a great friend and really kind of let me uh, find ways that I thought would be successful to advance the organization along but getting those wide variety of experiences, the board and Judy were just excellent at um, listening to ideas. They let me help facilitate uh, a development strategic plan for them and uh, really explore new areas. So it was learning, um, I'd say learning at, from experimentation, but it was also had great mentors to constantly go to and ask questions about um, different strategies and different things that, that would work. We had a really good board that had some of them had experience in fundraising too that that kind of helped guide that that conversation along so could couldn't be more grateful um, for that experience and actually at, when I left friends of kids with cancer to go to the university setting at St. Louis U um, I was able to join the board then after that they asked me to come on and ultimately be vice president of that board um, and doing that and it was it was just such a meaningful uh, thing that we were able to do both from working it and raising money, but then the volunteer side of it too, to continue to work to raise money for that, uh, just a great organization um, in, in St. Louis. Was it hard? I mean, just given the, I mean, the name says it all, but you know, the mission and the impact there is, is I'm sure it had to be unbelievably emotional at times. Mm -hmm. um, how do you think about that and that that part of the nonprofit world relative to higher education, where we all feel strongly about it, but it's not as much of a deeply maybe emotional fundraising, I don't know, narrative or impact story as you might have experienced at Friends of Kids with Cancer. Yeah, I would say it's pretty similar when I was at St. Louis U on the medical center side. 
Um, most of my career before I got to K-State was really focused on the medical center, friends of kids with cancer, and then uh, the medical side uh, of that. And when you look at grateful patient fundraising, it, it, it is very unique in that, you know, we look at that timeline. And when you, when you have those positive or uh, emotionally challenging emotions that you're working with donors on to either create a legacy for um, the doctor that saved them or the person that ultimately subsided to uh, whatever sickness that they had and, and trying to make those connections, you, you, you do learn to navigate conversations a lot differently. And I, I feel, you know, again, when you sit down and, and talk with families or individuals that are going through something, it goes back to what I said earlier is people want to help. They want to show gratitude. They want to find to make sure that research is done. So future, um, future individuals who might have that same sickness uh, might have different tools to and different um, uh, um, methods and medicines to overcome that sickness. So, you know, it does, it does kind of shape it. It goes back to, you know, the, the inherent good nature of what people want to do for, uh, each other and their communities uh, in doing that. So, you know, I, I don't look at it as much different. You're still connecting passions with priorities. You're still having the conversation, um, and you know, the empathy, the empathy we all have towards towards people um, allows us to be able to do that um, in in really whatever setting you are. I do think there's a different timeline sometimes between grateful patient and um, just general higher ed fundraising or general nonprofit fundraising because, you know, you are working within that window. And, you know, again, there's comp there's complexities like HIPAA requirements and working with doctors and um, all that kind of stuff. So um, I, I do think it, you know, those that have grateful patient uh, fundraising experiences, you know, are, are I think, have a have a great skill set for any type of fundraising as well. What are maybe some of the most fulfilling memories from your time? at St. Louis University, you were there for over six years and obviously built a good foundation in the higher ed sector that I know has continued to serve you well. Yep, absolutely. It, it, to me, every experience revolves around people and um, the people you work with, um, the donors you work with, the boards that you get to participate on. Some of my lifelong friends have came from um, places I've worked like St. Louis U, um, you know, had great leaders there. Martin Leifeld, who continues to be one of my mentors, who went on with the Mizzou system, uh, hired me there and just really helped uh, instill a lot of, I, I think, excellent fundraising um, uh, values uh, in, in how we go about our work. Um, their current vice president, Sheila Mannion, just was a great friend and uh, really enjoyed working with with her as well. And then the people that I got to hire that I've seen, I, I got asked one time, what is the most rewarding thing you've accomplished in your career? And, you know, raising lots of money for cancer programs and all sorts of different things has been really rewarding. But there's nothing to me that that I get that I take more um, pride in is when I see somebody that I hired or somebody that uh, I brought on board. Um, reach leadership levels um, in, in our field. And the number of people who are vice presidents now that were directors when I was the executive director of medical center development at St. Louis U is just is awesome. And I really look at that as probably one of my greatest accomplishments is hiring people and getting them to really understand what it means to be a fundraiser and take this on as a, as a career and move into those leadership roles. Who are some of those people Matt, that you've uh, enjoyed kind of tracking yeah. as they've advanced? Yeah, so um, uh, 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 Greg Knott, who I know you've had on your program, is now uh, at University of Connecticut. He came on uh, working with me on grant writing and our, um, our Casa de Salud Health Center, our um, uh, uh, Hispanic Health Center at St. Louis U, and he was really helpful in that process. Uh, Stephanie Nye, uh, who's now leading the campaign at St. Louis U, um, she was hired as a director of development, kind of replaced me as a, when I moved into a more leadership role. Um, Brandon Zollner is leading corporations and foundations at Rose Holman. Um, Mike Higgins is a VP of a nonprofit in St. Louis now. I, I mean, I, and I can go on and on about some it. of those individuals that um, are just doing just incredible things in fundraising. And that, that's what I love. They, they didn't leave. They, they found it as their passion as well. And um, you did get back in the, in the pediatric kind of realm for uh, a couple of years mm -hmm. uh, and then ultimately 
major leap into higher ed, what, what stands out from that experience? Yeah, you know, I one thing I learned was I, I looked at that uh, uh, vice president role at the pediatric hospital as, and it was a specialty hospital too, working with a lot of kids with very severe um, illnesses. And I realized that uh, what I was doing as a volunteer with friends of kids with cancer, I didn't have to work in all the time. And, you know, I, I wanted to make sure I kept that passion. And, uh, you know, I, the, the energy level at a hospital and the energy level at higher ed is is different. Great programs and things being done at both of them. But I, I miss the kind of the natural going into fall and a uh, new group of students coming back in. And, um, you know, you, you look at your reunion programs and your homecoming programs and really enjoyed that a lot. So when I had the opportunity to go to Kansas State University and uh, really under a great leader, Greg Willems, I, I jumped at the opportunity to learn from him and really uh, kind of look at how he works with boards and kind of um, really shape uh, really sophisticated uh, board development and fundraising practices and strategies for a major campaign. So yeah, that's kind of how I transitioned back into uh, the higher ed side from the hospital uh, fundraising world. Well, let's talk about your time at K-State. Uh, it was an exciting time to get there. And, you know, Greg certainly has a, an amazing reputation in the industry, but, uh, and, and they pride themselves on really trying to be just top decile, you know, or better performers um, on, on any objective measure. Uh, and and I, I guess I wonder what, what was it like when you think back to your first month, you know, three months there, um, did it feel totally different? Was it a pretty seamless transition? I mean, just what were some of your early impressions about the time when you joined K-State and then just what the, um, the level of excellence was that they were seeking? Absolutely. I would say the biggest transition was just having the confidence to have that high level of innovation. And that's something that I've carried with me to this day. Um, Greg's, Greg Willem's confidence in us to try new things and encouragement to try new things that the same strategy um, uh, that we had been using for years and years did not have to uh, did not have to be implemented in that same way. Um, we also had a great group um, there, uh, Julie Craig, their uh, lead researcher, leading the research team, uh, highly innovative. Chris Spooner, he was leading the campaign at the time, um, just an exceptional leader, and really uh, Chris's ability to. Uh, look at Gallup's strengths and leadership styles and, and, and link those things. And then um, about a year and a half after I got there, John Morris coming on board and bringing a whole nother level of innovation. And uh, John now um, moving on to uh, the senior vice president at Auburn. So proud of what he's accomplished and, and his mentorship and leadership that he brought to K-State as well. And I think, you know, when you look back at those strategies and those effect, things kind of stick with you and you, you modify those to each place you're at. But, um, you know, Greg gave us a lot of responsibility to work with the board, work with the development committee on some of our retreats and, and lead those sessions and um, forever grateful and learning from him on really how to run a high functioning uh, board for an institutionally related foundation and continue to um, seek his advice uh, uh, on different strategies as well. But uh, again, it kind of goes back to what you asked earlier. It's the people you work with at each place, and you really do see exceptionalism in them. And you take different strategies. And again, it's not it's not a cut, copy, paste because you know if you take exactly what you learned at one place and and implement it exactly, every shop is different. Every shop has different fundraise fund funding models. Every shop has different ultimate um, strategies. Same goals to raise money, but there, there's different nuances, different staff structures, different everything. So you have to, you know, look at those effective practices and see how you can modify them into um, strategies that would be successful for you as well. And, and while you're at K-State, uh, in addition to raising a bunch of money with that team, uh, you got to get back to your teaching roots. Is, is that right? Yeah. So I uh, got to teach in the Snyder Leadership Studies Program um, uh, and teach a, a senior capstone nonprofit class uh, there with Martha, with Marsha Hornig. And just really enjoyed that experience as well. Again, teaching, I think it's something as leaders we all we all need to do. We're, we're all teachers, and um, I, that really resonates uh, with me a lot. So have enjoyed that and, um, you know, leading um, other sessions uh, here at Utah State and um, just, uh, you know, finding ways to get people really excited about the nonprofit world and fundraising. It's, it's, it's an amazing career. 
Um, and uh, I think working with with those individuals that have interest in it and, and showing them ways that it's not exactly what you might think is 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 a lot of fun. And along the way, and I don't exactly know the order of events, but you decided to uh, pursue and, and ultimately receive your PhD in higher education administration and public policy. Was that a goal that emerged early in the journey? I mean, what was sort of your thinking that went into that? Because that's a lot to take on. You know, you're working, you're teaching, and you're getting a PhD. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, with with uh, I'm sure other responsibilities in life too. Kids, so, yeah. And my yeah. wife likes to remind me how much because I could not have done it without her because I did I, I got my PhD in both higher ed and men and public policy doing night school and weekend courses and, and all that so it took me a long time to complete it um, but it was something I, I I did remain focused to and my my mentors there um, from Dr Fowler to Dr Croft to uh, so many others um, just were really instrumental. Uh, in, in helping me get through, and they were they were two just great mentors I was able to have through that time uh, in doing that. So, um, yeah, I I decided to do it I, again. Going back to the teaching with the ultimate goal to uh, teach in higher ed or kind of look at the university administrative uh, different levels and, and and see how that could uh, help my career. Um, the the higher ed men and public policy side was really centered around board governance. Um, um, Dr. Fowler, who was my mentor at the time, was a JD PhD and was trying to get me to go to law school, but um, to get a JD also. And I didn't want to do that, but uh, the policy side really re- resonated with me around board governance and um, really, you know, how those effective policies and practices can lead to higher uh, achieving and accomplishing boards. So uh, stayed focused on that, and um, yeah, I, uh, completed it. Um, it was a long road, but uh, yeah, it was a big weight off when I finally um, did did walk and got got hooded and completed it. So, um, but yeah, it was a, a lot of a lot of help uh, from a lot of people um, to get there. So let's say we've got some listeners who are maybe thinking someday that might be something that I'd be interested in in pursuing, but it seems like a lot of work because it is. How would you counsel? And I'm sure you've had people reach out and say, hey, Matt, you know, I'm thinking about it. What's your advice? Do you have a framework or, or a way that you pose questions to folks to even uh, give them a sense of, yeah, this could make sense? Or, you know, honestly, based on what you shared, maybe the juice wouldn't be worth the squeeze. No, I, you know, I think education is always worth it. And um, learning is always worth it. And to me, a lot of the things that I learned through it um, I've been able to use in my career and and not just use, but the the method to go about how to get research and to how to, you know, when you do your dissertation, you are, you are researching, you are studying, you are looking for ways that you think are good practices and strategies and you're studying them and testing them and, and then ultimately producing that report. So I, I would highly encourage it um, looking at your career. Um, I don't, I don't think it, it de- hurts by any means whatsoever. Um, and, and, you know, it does show, you know, whether it's a PhD or, uh, you know, it does it's any terminal degree, the number of JDs that are now in fundraising at that terminal Juris Doctorate level, uh, I mean, it does show commitment to work. And, uh, you know, when, when you see somebody who's gone through it and completed it, um, you know, I think that tenacity does pay off um, in their career too, because they, they have gone through a very difficult um, grind to to accomplish something that's profound, and um, I, I would highly encourage them to do it. I, I would definitely say make sure you love what you're studying because you are living in that world for however long it takes. I think the average time to, you know, especially if you're just doing night school to complete a PhD is six to eight years, and so you are reading everything. I I, I remember that when I finally got done, um, going to get other books besides. Um, higher ed fundraising uh governance policy books just to because for years it was every free time i had i was reading journal articles and something that i could take that hopefully i can use in my lit review and my citations and everything that it's like oh i can actually read something different now and and not worry that i'm wasting time doing something for fun so just love it love love what you're trying to accomplish uh, in that area and if that's the case you just keep with it and keep working toward it because you can do it so you 
were doing all of that, you're teaching and you uh, were working at K-State, um, but ultimately had the opportunity to join Utah State. Tell me about that. Was it a difficult decision, an easy decision? And what were you most excited by when you went through that recruiting process? So any, any decision is a difficult decision, especially when you're at a place that you absolutely love. And I'd say that's the same thing with St. Louis U. Um, uh, same thing at K-State is the friendships you have there and, and a lot of them lifelong friendships um, and, and still keeping connected and working with them. So, uh, yeah, it was a difficult decision at first and um, up until when you when you accept it, because you, you, you know the support system you have, you have a known and even in a highly innovative environment, you know, you're going to be supported to try new things coming to Utah State. I, I felt that um, our president here really was looking for something like that, that would have the confidence and, and trust to try new things, to not just do the same old um, uh, fundraising process that, that we had always gone through. And um, it was really President Noel Cockett that um, I, I knew I had heard about as a leader. I visited with her and she inspired me that, yes, this is a place that I could come and really be a part of a team to do something exceptional. And I would have the support um, from her to try new things. I mean, you know, well, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but we have a whole new campaign model that we, we've, we've kind of bucked the old 10-year um, schlag. We, we've put out a new model that's been approved by our foundation board, and she's supported, approved by our deans and leadership, VPs, and she supported it. We got rid of portfolios. That would never have happened without the full commitment of the president of the university uh, to make that happen. And so her trust and um, again, it's it's data to her too. She wants to see the numbers and if it if it makes sense, sure, let's try it. Um, we can always go back to, to try something else, but um, her, her energy, her vision uh, really made that move easier. Uh, the hard part was leaving a great group of people at um, K-State. Yeah, well, let's talk about um, two of the things you just mentioned, because you are running some experiments right now. And I don't think you're here, uh, you know, and I know you've participated with other um, conversations where you're, you're saying you've got it all figured out, but you are making some bets here that are rooted in data and also anecdotes, uh, both around the future of the capital campaign and then the future of the portfolio. And so mm -hmm. let's break down both of those. Let's start with the capital campaign because there are a lot of people, I mean, I'm on calls all day, we just finished campaign, we're mid-campaign, we're gearing up for a campaign, we're in a silent phase. It's not really silent because everybody knows about it. Like <laughs> we just say these things, right? And, and it's just been a part of the lexicon, uh, probably being taught in nonprofit PhD programs. And so on one hand, let's learn from it, but on the other hand, let's question it and then let's try new things in a pragmatic way. So what is the future? What's wrong with the capital campaign? And in your mind, what might the future be and, and how are you going about that? And the only thing I'll correct is I don't have everything figured out. It's it's constantly still trying to work towards, you know, what strategies are working um, and constant evaluation and looking at the data. But, um, you know, I think in anything, um, kind of going back to that research, I, we asked ourselves a lot of questions on what we wanted to be here at Utah State. Um, we, we went out and asked our board members, our donors, what is it that Utah State wanted to accomplish? And so, you know, this, you know, I've been here three and a half years now, um, and we're just implementing some of these some of these things along the way. I'd say the portfolios happened a little bit. The no portfolios happened a little quicker. But the campaign model was, uh, you know, going to every college board, going to our alumni board, our foundation board, our trustees, um, department boards, uh, other donors, and talking about this new model and saying, you know, what makes most sense for USU? Um, you know, how do we want to accomplish very strategic goals to advance to the next level? And, and a couple of things that were just clear right away is the appetite for a 10-year, eight-year, whatever year campaign was just not there. The other thing we asked ourselves is we really didn't know what higher ed was going to need in two years, let alone 10. And we could see that with COVID. We're changing so quickly. New leadership coming in. We're hiring two new deans right now. Well, in a, the old campaign model, you kind of have to do a reset. A new dean comes in and has to put their vision on that. Well, in this, you know, with these impact campaigns that we're going to run, um, we're, we're trying to highlight a couple of things. You know, there's elements we want to keep. We want we want to keep, you know, volunteer engagement. Um, and we think we found a way we can do that and link people's passion with some of these priorities going on. We want to we want to incentivize the ultimate gifts. 
We want to create urgency. Um, we we want to we want to talk about impact, and we want to really be clear that it's not about the number; it's about the impact. We have goals, though, and our board has set really high expectations to get to certain levels. If you want to know where we are over ten years and how much we ran, I can tell you. Um, that that's not that's not the problem at all, and it should continue to go up and up and up. Um, but we we want to measure the individual impact campaigns on their success, and when we complete one, we'll start another. We'll we'll keep finding ways to accomplish the vision for USU, for our colleges, for our athletic programs, for our statewide campuses and university-wide initiatives uh, in doing that, um, and raise money for what people are passionate about, what other priorities that are going on here. So we're not, we're not limiting ourselves from accomplishing um, really lofty expectations over a period of time. We're just trying to keep all the focus and, the, and how we communicate on these impact initiatives. We're not having a campaign logo or slogan. We have a great brand at USU. We're, we're, a lot, we're relying on our central marketing team and our advancement and foundation marketing team to work together on, on what that is. We have some great messaging going out. So it's really, how do you create your Aggie impact? And how do we tell that story as one USU instead of begging the college to get our logo and campaign slogan on their website and, and doing all these things? We don't we don't feel it's necessary to do that. The silent phase, we're launching it, and we can adapt as as we move along with these different initiatives um, and doing so. We're we're kind of, we're in it now, um, and we'll be uh, doing a doing a launch event uh, this fall to launch these initiatives and talk about the donor stories and the student impact uh, behind that. And we're going to go out nationally and and do the same thing. So we're not waiting until we get to sixty or seventy percent. We're just we're telling our story now on on really what what it means to create that impact here at USU. So it sounds like what an impact campaign is not is just taking a 10-year capital campaign, taking the goal, dividing it by 10, and just calling it something different. How would you define an impact campaign? We've right. heard uh, John Morris uh, refer to it perhaps as a capital sprint. There are other people, you know, considering different versions of this. But what is an impact campaign in your world? Yeah, so we're looking at some uh, from the presidential level, some overarching initiatives, land, water, air, diversity, equity, and inclusion, health and wellness, um, looking at some of those big things um, that we want to really put our um, uh, flag in the sand for USU, what that means. Um, getting back to an R1, we're, we're really close to an R1 research institution. Those are some lofty visionary things and really identifying the number that needs to accomplish that. Student success is another one. And that, that's kind of evergreen. We're always going to be raising money for students and, and those programs. But uh, putting some concrete goals, we've been working over the last year with Robert Wagner and our admissions office on really what USU needs to recruit and retain um, new students um, who you know, might come from underserved populations that might uh, be first gen. Um, how do we get them um, uh, to really see that value in what an education can provide and provide scholarship support for them? So we're able to put some numbers on things. And then when we accomplish it, I'm sure we're going to have to look at it again and say, okay, now where do we want to go? Uh, and then we can set a new level or a new bar in those different areas. Faculty excellence. The best way to invest in students is to invest through faculty. And we, we, can, we can tell our story in a different way on what it means to do some research funds, endowed chairs, professorships in these key areas uh, to help us elevate um, what we're doing here at USU. So we've identified some broad um, uh, areas and then you know under those we have several things we want to accomplish and, and some excellence areas too around our athletic programs, um, some facilities around that, um, uh, other projects around campus that are really a high priority to whether it be the individual college um, or um, uh, the university as a whole. So you've begun um, sharing this concept in different leadership circles and you've got a strong network. Among your peers in advancement leadership roles, when people hear this, are you getting a reaction of, good luck, Matt, like I, you know, more power to you, um, but I'm gonna go fire up my 10 year capital campaign or do you feel like there's actually a changing tide? Maybe it's too early to say, but I'm just curious to know when you lay this out, are you seeing your peers' eyes light up or are they saying that just seems too complicated for um, how we've always been doing things? Yeah, and I think whatever works best for the shop, again, none of us are the same. 
this is what we feel is going to work best for USU and to continue that level of fundraising excellence uh, and new accomplishments that we want to get to. Uh, you know, I'd say, you know, a lot of uh, people I talk to are leaning towards more innovation, uh, are looking for ways to do things instead of the, the same old way. They see the industry changing. They see donor demographics changing, um, strategies, uh, all that. So I think there's a level of excitement uh, in and what, what can we do different? Um, and again, I think there's elements that work very well um, that we do want to keep and retain. Um, but I think, you know, how we tell our story, how we uh, create excitement and energy around uh, various things is, is really important. Campaigns are perpetual now. And, you know, when you look at impact campaigns, we're always going to have projects and uh, initiatives and things that are driving the university, we're always going to be raising money for a, a wide variety of things and keep setting our bar higher and higher. And that's really, uh, you know, fundamentally what a capital campaign does. It's to get you to increase your level of fundraising excellence, help you define vision, help you do these things. We're just going to try to do it in a different way that's not um, putting an ultimate number on that, but putting numbers on things that we do need to accomplish here at USU to, to elevate what we're doing and help us achieve our vision. Love it. Well, Matt, you had uh, alluded to this earlier, but um, you also have eliminated portfolios. And I got to admit, even when I first heard you say that, my initial reaction was like, what could that mean? How, how could that possibly work? What was the catalyst to eliminate portfolios? And what does that mean at Utah State today? Yeah. So, you know, I, I've actually hated portfolios for a long time, and it really gets back to, you know, when you see it was hard to forecast goals. And when I got into more leadership roles and looking at portfolios and trying to get individual goals, but also overarching fundraising goals for unit, you know, I, somehow in higher ed fundraising and fundraising, we've turned verbs into nouns. Cultivation, qualification, and solicitation are verbs. They're not nouns. They're not statuses. And to try to come up with a number based on how many people are in cultivation, how many people are in solicitation, trying to get timelines down. I think our industry has done a good job starting to evolve towards more proposals and driven. And ultimately, we asked ourselves, why do we need barriers and boundaries around people, putting them in these silos when we know nationally that 35% of people in portfolios are not seen? And when I got here at USU, we that was it was that number. It was a very high number of people that were only being seen. So 35 were being seen. Um, the rest were not being seen. We had some of our major donors that had not been engaged the right way. And we started asking them. Um, and I think one of the defining moments when I was like, yeah, we got to do something different. I was talking to two of our, one of our board members and, and just exceptional donors and not just donors, but uh, volunteers for the university. And uh, I'll never forget what they said. Um, it was, I hope you do not treat other Aggies like you treat us. And I was like, well, what do you mean? They're like, it's a stand in line approach. By the time this group is done asking us, we have somebody else knocking on the door asking us. And, and it really just kind of cemented that idea that th this is wrong um, in, in doing it that way. Why can't we have a global approach and re-envision our principal giving program that is not that is very inclusive with development officers, that's development officer led, um, but is engaging donors in meaningful ways. Why do we need to put people in silos that, you know, this this couple gives broadly across campus? Um, having them in one portfolio does not really make sense for them uh, to be engaged in that way. They need to be engaged broadly. And the more connection points they have, um, the better off it is. When, then we had one other anecdotal story just real quick is um, right when I got here, we had um, uh, uh, two alums that had a proposal in Seattle uh, from our College of Science. And our dean from uh, Humanities and so Social Sciences wanted to go out and see them. It was a dual household. And the dean and development officer was like, no, 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 let us close this proposal first. And I'm like, that doesn't really make any sense. You have another dean who wants to engage this couple. And I said, you know, I, I will never, I'm, I, I'm, I'm smart enough to know one thing. Don't tell deans what to do too much because um, they have their own vision and they have, they have goals that they want to hit. So I said, I, you know, Joe, I'm not going to tell you not to go see him. Please go see him, but just be conscious that there's a proposal on the table for this college. And he said, absolutely. He came back and he had closed the proposal for the other college. I thought that was just absolutely great. And that kind of helped uh, move the needle a little bit further. And since then, this couple has given well over a million dollars um, to both units. And they're engaged in both sides of the conversation. Our DOs are working together 
instead of in silos. Uh, and that might be part of my Gen X characteristic is I don't like silos. I like to work across units, um, make sure that we are coordinating appropriately. We, 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 don't, we don't need a kingdom build underneath us. We need to collaborate and, and find ways that can really maximize engagement and giving. And this, this approach really does that. It, it was a process. Um, getting deans to buy into it uh, was challenging. Um, uh, but I think ultimately, you know, the deans have seen a level of freedom that we're not telling them who to see and who not to see. We're just asking to coordinate asks. That's it. So if you go visit with somebody and they say, what, what, what do you need from me? Say, I have some ideas. Let me bring some ideas back to you. And let's come back and see what other areas that these individuals are looking to um, philanthropically support and, and coordinate those asks in doing it. Our, our gift officers are enjoying it better. They're working together. They don't feel this um you know where they're alone on an island working with these individuals um we we actually engaged a lot of our development officers to come up with our contact guidelines because we did have to create that uh, as well so you know overall that it's working we're seeing more asks we're able to forecast a lot better uh look at our numbers look at goal setting more effectively and um ultimately i think ultimately and most importantly creating better donor experiences with with opportunities to engage broadly across campus and growing revenue right i mean you've hinted mm -hmm. at it but you've seen it's early but you're yep. you're seeing an opportunity to uh just change kind of the the baseline annual outcomes uh, of the shop absolutely yeah we've uh we've increased fundraising every year um to to new levels with the ultimate goal uh to continue to go up so yes absolutely well, I want to be sensitive of time here, but you also did uh, share in advance of this that you feel like golf and, and, and gala are two four letter <laughs> words in the sector. So I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you why you feel that way. And look, we're coming out of the pandemic. You were yeah. telling me you've been doing visits again recently. And, um, yeah, you know, it, it's exciting to hear that. Uh, but isn't there a risk that we all start saying, all right, what are the events we had to cancel and let's make them even bigger and better this year? So, so difference, golf and gala are two four letter fundraising words. You do not raise money. Um, and I, I, I have actually had a couple people that said, well, this gala raises, yes, most galas cost more to do it. That does not say you should not, should not do events and do golf tournaments. I think the expectation that we have doing these, and we, did, we had a great uh, virtual uh, Founders Day Old Main ceremony um, just a few weeks ago um, that we had more people that attended than we ever had. We had 700 register, which in the past, we were lucky to get 250 to 300 come. And I, I think events are very meaningful for stewardship, for sharing message. We have a whole event plan that we're gonna roll out around the campaign for communication. What I always caution people is if you're looking to raise money doing the event, you're gonna, you're gonna, it's gonna cost you more at the end than, than doing it. So go in with the expectation that if you're doing this, this uh, gala, that, that you know, really it's focused on stewardship, it's focused on message sharing, it's focused on some of the other things, um, not necessarily trying to bring in $100,000 for whatever program because ultimately you're gonna spend more than what you, what you end up raising doing that. So, so and I have been that. corrected, there are, there are some amazing galas out there that raise millions of dollars for programs, but Overall, it's a, it's a real hard thing to do. And your development officers end up getting focused on the, the, the sponsorships and, and, and that instead of the major gifts um, that they should be out there right. uh, seeking. So fair to say, uh, silent auctions will not be a huge part of the impact <laughs> campaign strategy. No, we'll, we'll, still do, we'll still do our fun things, but it's not, it's not the focus to raise money. So we're recording this on Monday, April 19th. All of our social media have been friends and family members getting vaccinated and starting to you know, come out of uh, the pandemic. Uh, and you shared earlier this morning that you have been doing a bunch of visits. You've got a trip upcoming to Washington, D.C. What is that like? What have some of those conversations been like? I mean, I imagine maybe it's somewhat anticlimactic, but it has to be really fun just to be able to uh, get back out there. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think most of us in this business are um, people, persons that we, we really feed on energy of others and, and all that. Um, you know, I think we're going to ramp into it very carefully, very smart about how we go about engaging. 
Um, we're seeing more of our uh, donors um, are, are vaccinated and our development teams are getting vaccinated. So that creates opportunity for us to sit down and, and have those conversations with them. Uh, we were told throughout the pandemic, you know, I'd like to visit with you in person before I uh, really move forward on this, this gift. And um, now we're able to go out and have those conversations again. I do think, you know, we, we've talked a lot about this, uh, about how, how we move forward uh, with our travel territories. And, you know, in fundraising, our development officers are expected to travel. Um, that is in their job description. And so we're going to need to get back to doing that. Um, but I do think the virtual world is going to be with us uh, moving forward too. that. I, I don't, I, what we are trying to coach on, it's not the first ask, Hey, I'm going to be in uh, LA and I'd love to sit down and, uh, you know, really talk about your passions and what you want to accomplish through philanthropy at USU. Oh, I'm not available during that week. Great. Can we set up a virtual visit so I can meet you? And the next time I'm out, we can sit down in person. I think there's ways we can do that and also still look at, uh, territories that really are, are challenging to get to that we do have donors in um, and we can do that virtually as well. Um, but, uh, you know, I still want to make sure that we are hitting optimal objectives when we're traveling that, you know, nine to 12 visits when we're in a territory, getting there three to four times over 18 months and so on. So um, I think it's going to be this, um, you know, this kind of balancing act of keeping virtual, because I think that's going to continue to be important, but also getting back to face and face. And what we're seeing from our donors is they're ready to meet with us in person. No, I love the way that you just described that as, as the virtual backstop in this case, which is I am going to be in LA. I'd love to get together, Matt. Will you be around this Monday through Thursday? And your answer is no, I'm out of town. In the past, we might have then said, all right, well, I'll be back sometime a few months from now, and I'll reach back out before the next trip right. with the idea now being, hey, maybe Monday through Thursday, you're out of town, but maybe you can jump in a 30-minute Zoom call and we can still move the relationship forward without having the whole cycle dictated by travel schedules. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, part of the thing and what, what you know, I really appreciate with what you're doing, Brent, is the the analytics and research around it. And, you know, our research team led by Rachel Richards is just highly innovative and they're looking for new strategies that we can continue to do that. And, you know, how we're goal setting and how we're doing all that has just been uh, fantastic. But but you're right. I think, it, you know, it is it's we still have to to do our you know, there's still the traditional element of our job, but we don't want to you know, in anything we do, if we ignore opportunities um, and ignore uh, you know, how the, how the industry is shifting, you know, we'll be left behind. And, you know, we want to be on the forefront of that, not on the, the tail end of that. We want to be finding those ways. And, you know, we just have, we have such a great group of uh, fundraisers who've really bought into that pioneering spirit and um, the innovation that they can do in their job and our, our, our uh, development officer analysts, which is kind of a new thing that we've um, Please tell us about that, develop, you know, but, tell us about about in the spirit of, you know, not waiting or following the leader, uh, but trying to lead. What is a development officer analyst and why does it make life as a development officer at Utah State better than potentially other places? Absolutely. So, you know, this was the old prospect research group and, you know, their their careers, it was a lot of data entry. And, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of fundraisers. They're like, you know, research, they don't know what I do. They're not out there on the road. They can't tell me who to see and, and how to ask for a gift. And, and really, you know, there's two parts and we've all heard the art and the science and our development officer analysts are really the science part. And I, I think I'll tell a story and then kind of get a little more specifics. But uh, early on, you know, when we did our gift stories in advance, it was me, it was I went out and visited this person. It was I went out and did this. I closed this gift, our development officers. And then about two years ago, it really shifted to, you know, if it weren't for Rachel Richards and the development officer analyst, I would not have asked for this amount. I would not have been able to qualify this person. I would not have the tools and the research uh, to be successful in getting this visit and making the right, right ask. And so we've really paired our development officer analysts as part of the fundraising team, not, a, not separate from. For example, in order for our development officer analysts to uh, hit their goals, all 70% uh, of our fundraisers have to hit their five meaningful measures visits, asks, close, dollars raised, qualification visits, and so on. So they're directly linked to the team. So when our, our development officer analysts uh, talk about a goal, they're like, well, you must think I can do it because 
If I don't do it, you're not going to hit your goal. So we've linked the two together. Our trainings all involve the development officer analysts and the development officers as one. How do they work together uh, to make sure not just that we hit our goals this year, not just that we see the right people, but also how we can build out uh, proposals for three years out so we can ensure that ongoing success and continue to forecast at appropriate levels. So um, this change is really creating meaningful uh, opportunities for our, our this new team. We've career pathed them now. There's opportunities for promotion. They're engaged in the conversation. And boy, they, I mean, they've developed into just true leaders. I look at that group and um, how they came on, uh, you know, and, and just leading development officer strategy sessions, leading our principal gift conversations, um, providing a lot of uh, data and research behind what we're doing. Um, and, and it just changed the whole experience for that group and also uh, for our development officers as well. Development officer analysts, impact campaigns, no portfolios. There is a lot of new <laughs> ideas uh, rooted in pragmatic thinking. This is not let's just uh, try new things and hope um, it, it's it's all, you know, test and measure and adjust uh, on the fly. But I have to ask, Matt, are you hiring right now? Kind of what's the state of affairs as it relates to, uh, you know, where you see the shop going in the next uh a couple of years, let's say. Absolutely. So we we are hiring um, as we go into these impact campaigns and new uh, levels of fundraising uh, production. Um, we are growing our team. We have uh, we're just um, uh, having an offer for another gift planning officer. Uh, we also have two development officers, one uh, in our College of Science and one for university wide. We're hiring. Uh, we just hired a new event specialist um, who who just came on board. Um, and we, we do have plans to grow um, uh, in some other areas as well. Uh, looking at, uh, hopefully, um, uh, we had uh, posted and we're hiring an AVP for collegiate development. We postponed that with COVID and we look to get that posted here, uh, hopefully pretty soon as well. So yeah, we're, we're growing. Um, the, the expectations are um, gonna go up, but we're having a lot of fun doing it. And that's, you know, that, that, that great career experience we want is we wanna develop the next generation here at Utah State of fundraising leaders, and that we do that in our mentoring and onboarding program, and, and so on. So, um, if you're looking for an exciting opportunity, we'd love to love to hear from you um, and uh, be a part of something that we think is going to be very special. I've got to say, Matt is a uh, passionate, enthusiastic leader who cares about the sector, cares about his team, uh, and I would encourage you to reach out to him on LinkedIn. Uh, Matt, is there any other channel where you'd prefer folks uh, connect or is that best? LinkedIn's great. Um, or my email, if you put that out there too, that's fine too. Love it. Okay. Well, with that, Matt, we're going to conclude today's uh, conversation. Cannot wait to continue to track uh, and collaborate, uh, obviously, in some ways on uh, your work in the coming months and years, um, but really appreciate you being willing to share um, your journey with our audience. Thank you very much, Brent. Really appreciate it. And all you do for our industry and sector as well. All right, Brent, signing off from Hilton Head Island in South Carolina. Take care.